So uh, I'm pleased to talk to you this evening about Shakespeare's Christian ethics. Uh, I know that the title is quite grand uh, and the topic is huge. Uh, I hope that you'll forgive me for the presumption of thinking that I can do the topic justice. Uh, I also hope that you will forgive me for talking about plays that uh, you may or may not have read. Uh, in preparing for the lecture, I was possessed, uh, as tends to be the case for me, by a powerful spirit of enthusiasm. Uh, Shakespeare's interest in ethics spans his career, and I've referenced works from the entire in order to try to show Shakespeare's approach to ethics in different genres and at different stages in his career. Although my remarks are far from exhaustive, they may nevertheless be somewhat exhausting. Um, if you find the lecture stuffed and overweight, uh, I just ask that you treat my folly with the same indulgence you show that fat knight, uh, plump Jack Falstaff. Uh, okay, I realize that my title risks suggesting that I believe that Shakespeare had a system of ethics or that he was a philosopher in poet's clothing. Uh, let me begin by clarifying my view on how systematic Shakespeare was in his thoughts on morality. We know simply from reading his works that Shakespeare knew about philosophical systems from Aristotle and Plato to Cicero and Lucretius to Aquinas and Scotus to Machiavelli and Montaigne. He knew about nominalism and skepticism. He relied on scholastic faculty psychology and virtue ethics for the categories that he employs as he creates characters that, more than any dramatic characters before, resemble real people. What did Shakespeare make of the philosophical and theological learning that was available to him? At one extreme would be to believe that Shakespeare simply borrowed whatever was at hand that he thought would help in entertaining audiences. Uh, this, of course, doesn't give Shakespeare enough credit. Indeed, it gives him less credit than we tend to give ourselves. Uh, it would, however, be going too far if we said at the other extreme that Shakespeare adhered to one philosophy or built out a philosophical system of his own. In my view, Shakespeare was not a systematic thinker. He was, however, a comprehensive, deep, incisive, and eminently practical thinker. There is a consistency of thought in Shakespeare's works, but it is not the consistency of a system. It's the consistency of a person who grows and develops, but remains the same person. Shakespeare's works show him returning again and again to ethical problems, and they show his handling of those ethical problems developing over time, hand in hand with his dramatic skills. The outcome of his exploration is not a philosophical system, but a corpus of independent but related poetic and dramatic works. The corpus of his works has an organic unity. Uh, its consistency is not that of a system of thought, but of a living thinker. 
in my view, this kind of unity is something better than the unity of a system. In addition to acknowledging that Shakespeare's ethics is not a system, I want to acknowledge that his approach is not positive. What I mean is that Shakespeare is not interested primarily in ethical achievement, but rather in ethical failure. His interest is not in what we ought to do, but in what we, in fact, really do. That includes a special interest in the errors we make when we think we are doing the right thing. The result is that his works display not the virtuous perfection of human conduct, but instead its myriad inflections and distortions. Shakespeare is interested in virtue, but virtue gone wrong. If he were a modern physician, he would be a pathologist, exploring the origins and development of illnesses. This is true from the start of his career. One early work that serves as a kind of blueprint for his later tragedies is his narrative poem, The Rape of Lucrece, in which Tarquin rapes Lucrece fully knowing that it will lead to his own self-destruction. As the narrator explains, it is in wanting to have something more that we lose what we have. And you have a handout, uh, I believe. Sorry, I didn't come prepared for class. Um, this is the first passage on your handout. So that in venturing ill, we leave to be the things we are for that which we expect. And this ambitious foul infirmity in having much torments us with defect of that we have. So then we do neglect the thing we all for want of wit, make something nothing by augmenting it. The dynamic we see in this stanza is repeated throughout the poem and indeed throughout Shakespeare's career. Appetite, which should be directed to the good, is directed to an evil that, when we achieve it, diminishes our being or even destroys us. In trying to get something we want, we leave to be the things we are. In trying to augment what we have, we make ourselves nothing. This reaching for more, this ambitious foul infirmity, is the action of Macbeth. Lady Macbeth goads Macbeth to be more a man, and he replies, and here's your second I dare do all that may become a man who dares do more is none. He, of course, succumbs to the temptation to be more and in doing so becomes none. The paradigmatic examples of this overreaching are, of course, those 
whose attempts to rise higher result in their fall. Shakespeare's comedies present the pathological as well. Although the comedies, by definition, end happily, it is not because of, but despite the qualities of those involved. The obstacles that love must overcome is the obstacle is rarely just a recalcitrant older generation. It generally it is some psychological block in the lovers themselves. The lovers are off are quite often their own worst enemies. Shakespeare's comedies are made up of lovers' errors, and they are not saved from their errors, but through them. This is true in the early comedy of errors to Shakespeare's late comedy, Twelfth Night, in which Orsino is in love with his own fantasy of love and Olivia is in love with a young man who is, in fact, a woman. Uh, and is, Twelfth Night is on the curriculum. And so some number of you have read Twelfth Night already. In this play, uh, the subtitle is Or What You Will. Uh, the wills of the main characters are not oriented toward an object that can bring satisfaction. Okay? The love in your imagination is not ultimately going to be satisfying. Uh, Olivia's love of a woman in disguise is not going to Their appetites are not directed toward food that will satisfy them. Of course, as things turn out, each finds a happy marriage, though not to the one they thought they loved. What makes everything work out is the fact that the woman dressed as a man has a twin brother who is identical to her in disguise. <laughs> um, when he appears, he slips in as the quite satisfactory object of Olivia's love. And when Viola drops her disguise and becomes a woman again, Orsino discovers that his bosom friend, hey, is a woman. <laughs> Good play. Resolution South, and you still have to read it even though you now have heard <laughs> The resolution sounds far-fetched, and it is. But its noticeable artificiality is used by Shakespeare to call attention to its opposite, nature's artifice. In Twelfth Night, it is not human intelligence that solves the love knot, it is nature. Nature is invoked at the end of the play as an agent that can solve problems by tricking us, specifically by substituting one thing for another. Identical twins serve as a kind of emblem for this. Nature gives us one person twice over, or two people who seem to be one. The confusion and mistakes that result are what bring about the happy ending. 
by slipping in a twin, nature gives the misdirected will its proper object. In this play, the main characters do not find happiness through their own virtue, but in fact, through their errors. They wind up wanting what is good, not because they chose it, but because of external circumstances. Nature provides for us despite ourselves. She is so good at this that we generally do not even notice. For example, she often makes duties and pleasures identical twins. Eating is a necessity. It is also a pleasure. And yes, it was a wonderful dinner. <laughs> Thanks to nature, when we pursue pleasure, we do our duty and nourish ourselves. Okay, sorry. We do our duty and nourish ourselves, okay? But we also, we were lured to that by pleasure. The same goes for sex. Nature lures us into perpetuating the species. In Shakespeare's works, he often relies on bait and switch tricks that imitate nature and use our errant appetite to lead us, despite ourselves, toward the good. Shakespeare's interest in things going wrong means that he does not give us many victorious heroes. When Shakespeare does give us one, such as Henry V, he complicates the character's motives in ways that force us to question his moral character. Shakespeare's Henry V is called uh, by the chorus in the play, the mirror of Christian kings. But the crown Henry wears is that of his father, whom he knows was a usurper and a regicide. Psychologically, as well as politically, Henry lives under the shadow cast by his father. Henry takes great pains to determine the legitimacy of the war in France at the beginning of Henry V. But he ignores the conflict of interest that assures the approval of the churchmen whose moral counsel he seeks. On the eve of the Battle of Agincourt, he prays that God not remember his father's guilt in obtaining the crown. Crucially, he entertains no thought of parting with a crown that amounts morally to stolen goods. In victory, he has the troops sing the non nobis and the te deum. But he imposes such harsh terms on the French king that his son, Henry VI, will not be able to hold on to what he has won. Most disturbing, perhaps, are the threats that Henry deploys earlier in the play to win the besieged town of Harfleur. His speech to the men of Harfleur concludes, and this is the next uh, passage. Take pity of your town and of your people, whilst yet my soldiers are in my command, whilst yet the cool and temperate wind of grace o'erblows the filthy and contagious clouds of deadly murder spoil and villainy. If not, 
Why, in a moment, look to see the blind and bloody soldier with foul hand defile the locks of your sh shrill shrieking daughters. Your fathers taken by the silver beards and their most reverent heads dashed to the walls. Your naked infants spitted on pikes whilst the mad mothers with their howls confused do break the clouds as did the wives of jewelry at Herod's bloody hunting slaughterland. What say you? Will you yield and this avoid, or guilty in defense be thus destroyed? We see here, among other things, Henry's habit of offloading onto others his duties of conscience. If all of this comes to pass, he, in this speech, he, he makes it clear that it will not be his fault. The fault will be that of his soldiers, or indeed of Harfleur itself. The biblical reference to the slaughter of the innocents is particularly chilling and odd. If Henry is a mirror of Christian kings, the image of a Christian king is far more complicated than the epithet suggests. Of course, Henry's speech at the beginning of Henry IV, part one, in which he tells the audience that he is imitating the sun and will in time shake off the clouds of East Cheap, should lead us to question whether his sudden conversion, as related by the churchmen at the beginning of Henry V, is indeed genuine. It is with good reason that many critics see Henry as more Machiavellian than Christian. Also coloring the entire play is our knowledge that Henry's victory seemingly definitive in the play, will in short order be overturned. If God's blessing is on, is on Henry, God also seems to have a sense of irony woven into his providential plan. Henry may be something of a hypocrite in his outward expressions of religion, but he is not a hypocrite in the obvious way that we see in the earlier character, Richard III, Henry may not really be a hero, but neither is he just a villain. He is rather a complex hypocrite. Indeed, he is one of Shakespeare's first truly complex characters. And in him, we should see some kind of reflection of our own complexity, especially if we, like Henry, profess ourselves to be Christians. We certainly see all kinds of actions across the moral spectrum within Shakespeare's works. Iago's villainy is close to diabolical. Desdemona's charity is saintly. But what we can also detect is the moral effect Shakespeare wants his plays to have on audiences. So let me turn now from Shakespeare's fascination with the psychological workings of his characters to his abiding interest in the psychology The virtuosity with which Shakespeare draws audiences into the action of the play is unparalleled, at least to my knowledge, by any author who had come before, with the exception of Plato, uh, whose readers are time and again run through the same ringer as the interlocutors in the dialogues. Some of you have been through that. <laughs> the 
The next closest contenders, in my estimation, would be Virgil and Dante, who draw readers to identify with their heroes and thereby undergo an, edu an education with them. But these are not the authors Shakespeare is indebted to. Rather, uh, he's playing with audience expectations. Uh, his playing with audience expectations is of the kind that we see in the late medieval mystery plays. The best example of audience manipulation in these plays may well be the York Crucifixion, which was part of an annual production of 48 plays from creation, the first play, to Judgment Day, the last play. The plays were performed on wagons that moved from station to station in the city, and the Crucifixion play took advantage of the elevation of the platform. Uh, on the wagon that served as a stage. So it is just the opposite of this, where you up in the heavens are looking down upon me on the stage. Uh, this was where on the stage, everyone would be standing below and seeing me, but you can't see the cue marks that tell me I'm supposed to stand right here when I give a lecture. Okay, I'm standing right on the X. Uh, you know, if you've been a performer, you know that when things are blocked out on the stage, you don't see it in the audience. Okay, great. Um, on these wagons, um, for most of the play with the crucifixion, the cross and the man playing Christ are lying flat on the stage. So the audience sees them, but not very well. What the audience does see are the Roman soldiers laboring with what they consider the hard work of the crucifixion. First, they drill holes in the wood, guides for the nails for the feet and hands. The problem is that the holes for the hands are too far apart. So they have to stretch Christ's arms out in order to nail his hands to the cross. This is intentionally ludicrous. It is a four stooges routine, full of physical humor. Is that the way you would choose to perform the crucifixion? I think a Georgetown difficulties and arguments over who's at fault for what. How their boss is going to be mad at them. How craftsmanship isn't what it used to be. The humor and irony work on multiple levels. Finally, when the soldiers get the job done, they struggle for some time to raise the cross, complaining about how heavy when they do finally raise it, suddenly we in the audience see what they have accomplished. We see not just a life-sized, but a real-life crucifix. Suddenly, laughing does not seem very appropriate at all. In making us feel ashamed for laughing at these four stooges, the play functions like a prank on the audience. It is, however, a beguil beguilingly comic 
complex frame. We may have been fooled, and we may be victims of a trick played on us when they get us to laugh, but we are not innocent victims. With our laughter, we become complicit in the action of the soldiers. We even find them entertaining. And when the truly innocent victim is elevated in front of us, we recognize painfully that we are not innocent and that the blood of Christ is on us. Like the master of yore, Shakespeare wasn't shy about pricking the consciences of his audience. Indeed, he was passionate about it. Uh, do you read any of the medieval um, mystery plays? In your, okay. Um, you know, this is the, the drama that precedes Shakespeare in these pageants, um, and they were performed even into Shakespeare's lifetime till he was about 14 in Coventry, uh, you know, maybe 10, 15 miles from where he lived in Stratford. Uh, people don't know whether he in fact saw them being performed or not. Um, they were suppressed by Protestants. Okay, they did not go in for this sort of thing. Um, but what I'm going to try to show Shakespeare's indebtedness to this kind of funny, serious dramatization. Uh, in these plays, I, I, can't, I have to try to get you to understand sort of these were entertainments in Europe, okay? Once a year, and celebrating, you know, the Feast of Corpus Christi, okay? uh, the performers were guildsmen. And you know those who would perform, say, Noah's Flood, what guild would perform that? Oh, the water carriers, the guys who you know carried water from the wells. Okay, there's your fill. Um, the crucifixion done by the pinners, okay, the nail makers in town. Okay. Um, this is, and you're watching the play, and the guys who are dressed up as Roman or Roman soldiers, uh, you know that guy. It's Fred, okay? And there is, what you had was, a, uh, I'm gonna put this in terms that I you know, would use with friends. Uh, it's a Catholic culture, okay? In which people are not worried about, you know, there, there aren't doubts about whether they're really Catholic or not, or um, it's, it's a given. way is one in which no one actually thinks you're going to lose your faith by going to your crucifixion. In fact, it was priests who wrote this. Okay. Uh, and there is, in some of them, they're pretty heavy-handed morals at the end. In case you missed it, okay, you know, let me hammer this one. Um, and your crucifixion you know, does have sort of a hammer at the end. But what's really remarkable is Christ speaking from people who take their faith as just, you know, a matter of course, when you get shocked like that, it makes you 
it shakes you out of uh, all of the things that you take for granted. That's, I think, what the aesthetic of this is and the moral of it is. Um, so, um, like the mass reviewer, Shakespeare wasn't shy about pricking the consciences of his audience. Indeed, he was passionate about it, and his skill in doing so developed over the course of his career. Although the subject of his plays were secular, the subjects were secular, the audiences for which they were performed were Christian, and his works were still calibrated to work on the psyches of Christians. Okay, so in a moment, I'm going to turn to a few plays in which Shakespeare catches the consciences of his audiences, but first I'd like to pause for a moment to underscore a crucial difference between Shakespeare's ethics and ours. For us, ethics is often seen as a discipline within philosophy, and philosophy is a distinct field from psychology and from sociology or anthropology. Those divisions did not exist in Shakespeare's time, and his ethics is not really separable from his psychology or anthropology. Indeed, with a little change in content, this lecture could be called Shakespeare's Christian Psychology or Shakespeare's Christian Anthropology. Uh, my point is that in this pre-disciplinary attitude toward human learning, uh, there were certain advantages. It allowed for what we would now call a holistic approach to human behavior. And let me illustrate by returning to Twelfth Night and focusing on the ca character of Malvolio. If you haven't met Malvolio, you have a treat. Um, he is the puritanical killjoy who complains about Sir Toby Belch's alcoholic escapades, about Festy's clowning, and about pretty much all types of fun. Shakespeare was no fan of Puritans, and in general his audiences In the play, some of the characters conspire to trick Malvolio in order to expo expose his profound vanity and self-love. Now, Malvolio's name means ill will, and this is properly understood in terms of the moral theories of his time. But Malvolio's problem is not exclusively personal. Insofar as he's a Puritan, he participates in a larger social dynamic of the kind that our modern social sciences, such as psychology, sociology, anthropology, and politics might study. You know, the Malvolio demographic. And that, he is said to be sick of love, that's what Olivia says, and to, quote, taste with a distempered appetite, indicates that his problem is not just ethical and sociological, but also psychological. He, his soul, is sick. In modern terms, uh, we would say, I think, that he is a pathological narcissist. You know, if we could just prescribe the right meds, you know, <laughs> Shakespeare would just go away.
response to Malvolio is, like Shakespeare's approach, holistic. No matter how we look at him, we just don't like him. The basic reason is that he does not like anyone except himself. We in the audience are therefore delighted with the plot to trick Malvolio, and we are eager to see him knock down a peg or ten. <laughs> when Malvolio picks up the forged letter in which his employer, Lady Olivia, seems to profess her love, we are delighted. And when he concludes that he is the unnamed love in the letter, our judgment of his vanity is confirmed in spades. When he wears the yellow stockings cross garter to please Olivia, shall I hike up the hill? <laughs> um, we laugh. And when Olivia commits him to a dark room until he recovers his sanity, we feel that justice has been served. We may begin to feel a bit uncomfortable with Festi's psychological torture of Malvolio in prison, but Festi is so funny and Malvolio remains so full of himself that we want the prank to continue. However, at the end of the play, when Malvolio emerges and we see him humiliated, unrepentant, and deeply angry, we sense that maybe the trick went a bit too far. When Malvolio refuses to join the comic resolution of the play and instead says he will be revenged on the whole pack of you, we are surprised since this is a comedy after all. And when Olivia declares that Malvolio has been abused, we like the characters who perpetrated the plot, feel ashamed for what we did, or more properly, for what we will. We feel that his flight and the sour note at the end of the play are, in some measure, our fault. We wanted, and we felt justified in wanting, Malvolio to get his comeuppance. What we didn't foresee is that we, too, would get ours. On reflection, the play brings home to the audience the truth in the truism. Be careful what you wish for. The same play that showed us how nature can redirect misdirected love, in the cases of Orsino and Olivia, also makes us feel the pain of making poor choices. In The Merchant of Venice, Shylock has a function similar to that of Malvolio. We resent his precise adherence to the terms of the bond and deplore his thirst for revenge, which he calls justice. We are delighted with Portia's speech on mercy, directed at Shylock, and then with her clever trapping of Shylock in his own demand for justice. He wanted justice, and he when we see a beaten Shylock leave the stage with a broken spirit, we can't help but be sorry. Sorry for what we wished for. Like Shylock, we demanded our pound of flesh. When we get what we want, we're 
this already we did. The Merchant of Venice, it turns out, is not about the lack of mercy of the Jew on stage, but about the lack of mercy of the Christians on stage and in the audience. If we, in fact, are Christian, our own consciences should convict us of failing to be Christian. Okay, trapping consciences is an explicit theme in Hamlet. The play within the play, the mousetrap, is a trap laid by Hamlet to catch the conscience of the king. I'll discuss this play in a bit more detail since it's far more complex than any of the other plays we've discussed before and pretty much more complex than anything ever written. Um, one element of that complexity is that Shakespeare intentionally employs conflicting moral systems. The play is, the genre is, it's a Senecan revenge tragedy uh, in, in, you know, in which suicide and revenge are not sins, but moral We still love these kind of plays. I mean, Gladiator, what a great play. You know, I mean, Joachim Phoenix getting, I mean, who doesn't want that? Okay. Yeah. Um, the problem in Hamlet is, uh, he, Hamlet is in a Senecan revenge tragedy, but he's done. He's hampered by having the conscience of a Christian. What's even worse, he's a thespian. Uh, and his idea of the re of revenge plot is to put on a play. Okay. Um, that play, The Murder of Gonzalo, mirrors Claudius's murder of Hamlet's father, the king. As predicted, Claudius uh, reacts to the play. Um, but he doesn't confess. He doesn't say, I did it. He simply calls for light and departs. It is really not proof of anything except that Claudius did not like the play. Um, Hamlet designs the play as a mousetrap to catch the king, but it backfires. Hamlet, not the king, is the one who gets caught. The play does not reveal anything about the king. Instead, it tips him off. The play lets the king know what Hamlet knows, that Claudius murdered his father. The result is that Claudius ships Hamlet off to England and to his death. What is clear proof of the king's guilt, though, is the letter carried by Rosencrantz and Guildenstern to the English king, requesting the immediate execution of Hamlet. The king's guilt is not revealed through Hamlet's plot against him but through his own plot against Hamlet. In a sense, Hamlet's plot works, since it was his plot that provoked the king's plot, but it does not work in the way that he plotted. Um, plots backfire time and again, so that the image of the engineer hoisted on his own petard, uh, that is the, the bomb maker who accidentally blows himself up, um, 
this stands uh, like an emblem for the action of much of the play. As with Twelfth Night and The Merchant of Venice, we in the audience want justice when we watch Hamlet. We want Hamlet to kill Claudius. Earlier in the play, when Hamlet approaches Claudius at prayer, he decides not to exact revenge because if he kills Claudius at prayer, he will send him to heaven, which given his father's fate of wandering the purgatorial fires does not seem like justice. We, the audience, know that although Claudius is kneeling, he isn't praying. He has confessed to us, not to God, that weighed down by sin, he is unable to pray. When we see Hamlet delay, we want to shout out to Hamlet, just do it! to a revenge play and we want revenge. And Shakespeare knows that we will fault Hamlet for not killing Claudius when he has this chance. Hamlet delays throughout the play, except when he acts rashly, such as in killing Polonius. This delay makes the play Shakespeare's longest. Near the end of the play, when Hamlet receives the challenge from Laertes, Horatio offers to stall for Hamlet, threatening to make the play longer yet. <laughs> to our surprise and relief, Hamlet declines and affirms his readiness for what is to come. He attributes his readiness to an insight into God's providence. And this is the next quotation. There is a special providence in the fall of a sparrow. If it be now, tis not to come. If it be not to come, it will be now. If it be not now, yet it will come. The readiness is all. Since no man of aught he leaves knows what it is to leave the times, let be. I know it's a, a, a lot to sort of digest, uh, and it makes you a little bit dizzy, all of that, if it be now, if it be now. Um, for now, let's just say the fall of the sparrow is an allusion to the Gospel of Luke, in which Jesus tells the disciples not to fear, because God the Father, God their Father, is watching over them. They are worth more than a sparrow, next passage is from uh, the Bishop's Bible. Shakespeare generally uses a Geneva Bible, but here I think it's pretty clear he's using the Bishop's Bible. Are not five sparrows bought for two farthings, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Also, even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more of more value than many Now, it is the same passage, the same chapter in Luke, that provides the context needed to understand Hamlet's enigmatic, the readiness is all. And your next passage there, be ye therefore ready also. For the Son of Man will come at an hour when you think not. It makes sense 
this is the, the story of the, uh, I think the steward who, you know, his master is away and, you know, remember, you know, you shouldn't be eating and drinking and being drunk and beating up the servants and that kind of thing. Um, you, what you should be is ready, you know, for when he's coming back. Some, you know, in high school, sometimes my parents would leave me at home alone. sense that when one is ready for the return of the Son of Man, one is ready for everything. But it remains puzzling that Hamlet, who has spent most of the play plotting, at this point does not seem to have any kind of a plan. And yet, he is ready. But not having a plan turns out to be a good thing in this play. Indeed, in the end, it is Claudius' own plans that kill him. It is true that Hamlet kills him, but the unfaded poisoned sword with which Hamlet stabs him and the poisoned cup Hamlet forces him to drink were both prepared by Claudius for Hamlet. Claudius is slain by his own evil devices. Wow. I mean, I... I remember at one point thinking, okay, he stabbed him. Now he's making him drink the poison. Seems like overkill. Uh, literally, as everyone says now. Um, but uh, this is why. Uh, in killing Claudius, Hamlet is the minister of a justice that was not of his own design. In this revenge play, he is, in fact, a Christian avenger. You know, also guilty of manslaughter with Claudius and that kind of thing. But in the end, he does it right. We in the audience mistake the moral universe of the play. We are quite at home in a revenge tragedy. It was very popular in Shakespeare's time, and it still is in ours. What Shakespeare does is tricks us into checking our Christianity at the box office. Uh, that is, assuming that we brought it with us at all. Once seated in the theater, we think we know what Hamlet should do, kill Claudius. However, we come to realize, or at least we should, that Hamlet may be right to hesitate in exacting revenge. After all, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Forget Samuel L. Jackson's rendition of it. <laughs> For Hamlet to get revenge and not go to hell, he has to abandon the direct pursuit of it. He has to drop his plotting and trust in God's providence. The divinity that shapes our ends, rough hew them how we will. And this is God is the master craftsman. We rough it out, but he's the final carpenter finishes the works. And we have to be ready to act when given the cue. If Hamlet had killed Claudius when we wanted him to, he would have gone to hell, which is just where all of us who complain about Hamlet's delay 
so you can enjoy it here. <laughs> In the end, we get what we were asking for, justice and blood and lives of it. What we should have been doing and what we should be doing in life is joining Hamlet's let be at the end of that passage, which affirms a trust in providence rather than in our own plots and schemes. You know, it's an amen, right? And it also is a resolution to a dilemma, that dilemma to be or not to be. It represents not only a readiness for death, not to be, but also a readiness at long last for life, to be. For the Christian who is ready, life and death are all one. That is Hamlet's realization, and by the end of the play, it should be ours as well. some plays about love in which Shakespeare uses similar techniques to catch his audiences. In Romeo and Juliet and Antony and Cleopatra, Shakespeare lures us into misjudging characters and situations so that we can reflect on how these characters love and also on how we in the audience love. In Romeo and Juliet, Shakespeare gives us a clear picture of an immature lover he won't love anyone but Rosalind, but then he sees Juliet and asks himself, did my heart love till now? <laughs> we cannot help but laugh, and we share Mercutio's cynicism, if not his imaginative brilliance. Uh, we have our doubts about Romeo, and we may well side with Friar Lawrence and want the young people to heed his advice. Love moderately, long love doth so. You know, this is, I remember admiring a Xerox commercial on TV where they had kids uh, and they were asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? And the one kid says, I want to rise to is trying to orchestrate a comedy. Unfortunately, he's in a tragedy, but he's trying to orchestrate a comedy in which marriage reconciles the warring families. He is trying to use their love for his own purposes. His intentions are good, but he operates on the principle that the end justifies the means. The problem is that love is not something to be used, especially if one believes that it is what Christians believe it is. The problem with Friar Lawrence is that he trusts his own plans 
he substitutes his own ways and his idea of marriage to God's ways and God's true plan for humanity. And in siding with him, which I can't say we because I don't, but I, I, I find that, I mean, it is one of the most disheartening things about teaching Shakespeare, that I find that 19-year-olds are eminently prudent when it comes to love, and they all realize that this play is, um, you know, sort of a, a public service announcement about the problems of teen suicide. Um, uh, okay, Shakespeare's source, just so you know, Shakespeare didn't invent this story, his source had it sort of as a PDA, okay, with a heavy moral, and this is why, you know, we have to nip this kind of thing in the bud, okay? Shakespeare takes a different view, and he somehow, by giving us this immature Romeo, sets us up to look down on Romeo. We know what that is. Romeo and Juliet, Yes, they kill themselves, and one should not kill oneself. But we also should love. And if we have lived long because we have loved sparingly, that is not to our credit. Thank goodness that Christ did not share that view of love. Shakespeare puts our ideas of scene is framed by Romans. Um, they're there at the beginning and at the end and tell us to look, behold, and see. And there are Antony and Cleopatra on stage. So we're looking at the Romans, looking at them. Okay? And then they go off stage and the Romans talk. And that's how we are left. Um, so the opening scene's framed by Romans, and they interpret what they see as infatuation between Antony and Cleopatra, and we are encouraged to agree. But as the play progresses, we discover Antony's greatness time and again. Yes, he is foolish. He is, a, he is fond. He has a great, but he has a greatness of character, and his love surpasses anything Romans can imagine. When Eobardus defects, his friend, his loyal friend, who stays with him through thick and thin, but then finally says, this just is not reasonable, I have to go. When he defects, Antony magnanimously sends his possessions after him, along with his understanding and forgiveness. 
receiving this and Antony's message dies of a broken heart. Just as Shakespeare's genius doesn't fit in our heads and can make us feel like our heads are going to explode, so too Antony's surpassing love is too great for a lonely heart. And that of Enobarbus bursts. His dying words are, O oh, Antony, O oh, Antony. In death, Antony is a colossus uh, in the dream of Cleopatra. But not only in the dream of Cleopatra, uh, Caesar at the end of the play recognizes the greatness of Antony. We who laughed at Antony's infatuation should, at the end of the play, feel quite small. Indeed, the Christian allusions in Antony and Cleopatra point to something beyond both Rome and Egypt. When Cleopatra asks Antony how much he loves her in that opening scene, uh, he says that to measure it, one would have to find a new heaven, new earth. We originally understood this simply as an example of the hyperbolic language that lovers use. It is, however, an anachronistic allusion to the book of Revelation, which obviously had not yet been written. Cleopatra's pronouncement before her death, now no more the juice of Egypt's grape shall moist this is, like the new heaven, new earth, an anticipation or prefiguration of a greater love to come. They show Antony and Cleopatra reaching for a love and fulfillment that is beyond anything Rome or Egypt can offer or even understand. And the illusions make it clear that the love not yet revealed is the is a love between man and woman that goes as far as love can go before the love of Christ is revealed and bestowed on the world. Of course, in 1606, when Shakespeare wrote the play, this love had long been in the world and had countless times in the lives of countless Christians been taken for granted. Christian audiences who think that the play is simply a battle between worldviews, between duty and pleasure, overlook the Christian illusions in the play, and are tricked by Shakespeare into betraying their own worldly perspective. Now, I, I suppose you could write a, 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 a self-help book, you know, using Antony and Cleopatra to illustrate the difficulties of work-life balance. duties, but I need some Egypt time. <laughs> um, Romeo and Juliet, and far more impressively, Antony and Cleopatra show us, by contrast, just how practical, domesticated, and ultimately mundane our approach to love can be. 
These plays point us toward a greater love, a love that we would willingly die for. How great to have such a love. And a love that is for us, unlike Antony and Cleopatra, within reach. This, I am labeling the sections here. This is section six out of 36, so we're making good progress. <laughs> It strikes me that although Romeo and Juliet and Antony and Cleopatra end in tragedy, they actually do give us positive ideas of love. Let me now turn to the sonnets, which in their complicated way sometimes also give us positive ideas. The first 17 sonnets uh, encourage a beautiful young man to marry and have children. And in doing so, these sonnets establish the moral norm for the sequence. Be fruitful and multiply. As a sonnet sequence grows, the themes and perspectives also multiply, and they often become quite complex. I would like to spend some time on sonnet 116, uh, which is the next passage there. Let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. Love is not love which alters bends with the remover to remove. Oh no, it is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken. It is the star to every wandering bark whose worth's unknown, although its height be taken. Love's not time's fool, though rosy lips and cheeks within his bending sickle's compass come. Love alters not with his brief hours and weeks, but fares it out this be error and upon me proved, I never writ, nor no man ever loved. It is one of the most famous affirmations of love that we have. It takes a forceful stand against love that alters or bends. What the speaker is denying is considerable. It includes most of what we see in the rest of the sequence in which the changeableness of love and the worthlessness of lover's vows are commonplace. The reader of Sonnet 116 need not travel any further than the immediately adjacent sonnets to see the speaker's position contradicted. Sonnet 115 concludes that since love is a baby, okay, think of love is a baby, okay, good news, like a baby, love will grow. But that's not constant. Sonnet 116 is at odds not only with its immediate predecessor, but also with itself. As many have noted, the speaker seems to protest too much. From the initial refusal to admit impediments, the speaker betrays through the ambiguity of admit an unwillingness even to acknowledge the possibility of impediments to the love he describes. For the speaker, love does not overcome obstacles, but rather a 
asserts that obstacles are not obstacles. The number and forcefulness of the denials seem to say much about the speaker's psychology, as much about the speaker's psychology as it does about love. Without any alteration to the poem, it is quite possible to read the protestations of, as driven by doubt and fear, with the passionate certainty of a speaker in fact a sign of his uncertainty and of his fear of admitting that uncertainty. As is the case throughout the sonnets, the imagery in Sonnet 116 shifts and changes, and images are held together by a logic of association that, like consciousness itself, is not always clear. In the case of Sonnet 116, multiplication and substitution of vehicles, subtly and unintentionally, subconsciously, I would suggest, undermine the intended tenor, a love that alters not. In the first stanza, after alluding to the Christian marriage service in the Book of Common Prayer, the speaker shifts from marriage to the image of the compass, with love as the fixed foot that does not bend with the remover to remove. Um, the compass, you remember fifth grade? Oh, you do geometry here too. You know, the compass. <laughs> Audiovisual aid. <laughs> um, the compass was in the period a commonplace emblem for constancy. Dunn uses it famously in his valediction for bidding warning, and Johnson used it for his own impressa, uh, but made it a broken compass, whereas Dunn uses a compass as an image of unchanging love. Johnson uses it to call attention to the absence of any such perfection in our sublunary world. Both perspectives apply to Sonnet 116 in which the speaker insists on the kind of neoplatonic idealism Dunn asserts in the valediction, but, in but the reality he faces and that we see throughout the sequence is the broken world that Johnson sees. The compass is never named in the first stanza, but the word is used in the third stanza in which love and love's great opponent time are personified. Descriptive imagery is focused on time, and the word compass here refers not to love, but to time's bending sickle. The compass that bends not has become a bending compass, and the association with marriage has given away to an alliance with doom and death. Indeed, the speaker's boast that love bears it out until the edge of doom contains the unintentional admission that love lasts only until the end of time. As the marriage ceremony that Shakespeare echoes makes explicit, not only will all marriages end on the dreadful day of judgment, but those that had unadmitted impediments will be revealed to have been invalid all along. Although the speaker claims that love remains constant even in the face of death, his bold attitude is not enough to outface time. Death brings the ultimate alteration to marriage. In parting the partners, it ends the marriage. Given the compasses in the first and last stanza, it is tempting to look for a compass in the second stanza, 
were the successive images of the ever-fixed mark and the star to every wandering bark create an overarching image of nautical navigation? Although it would be fitting to think that in addition to the North Star, the speaker would also mention the instrument for identifying the North, especially useful when the stars are not visible, uh, the mariner's magnetic compass, you know, your Boy Scouts compass. Um, he does not. He does, however, implicitly allude to the mariner's movable compass. The, it's called the ball bell, uh, a wheel chart that was used in conjunction with a cross staff in order to navigate by the stars. The cross staff was used to take the height of the pole, okay, and that's the language of Shakespeare's evening, whose height is taken. Um, and that measurement served as the input for the movable compass. Um, if one grants the virtual presence of some kind of navigational compass in the second stanza, the poem presents a different kind of compass in each stanza. The compass is thus a constant and constantly changing. In the couplet, the speaker tries to outbreak not time, but logic. He is equally bold and equally unsuccessful. The force of the conditional statement, if this be error and upon me proved, I never writ nor no man ever loved. Okay, the force and conditional statement is clear. Since the speaker has in fact written and men have loved, he must be right. The failure of logic should also be clear, which is not to say simple. Forgetting for the moment about the ambiguous pronoun references and focusing only on the nature of the if-then statements, someone here taking logic? Um, we can say with certainty that what he means to say, that he has loved and is right, does not logically follow from the couplet. Consider, for example, the logically equivalent statement, if this is not an essay, I never wrote an essay or even graduated high school. The force of the couplet is quite real, but the force is emotional and psychological, not logical. And the speaker's error in mistaking passion for logic can in fact be proved. Shakespeare's sonnet is a devious and devastating send-up of what's called in The Prince's Bride, true love. Okay. <laughs> the in where I kind of believe in it, but um, in <laughs> Shakespeare's doing something different. The insistence of unbending constancy is in fact a rejection of the common experience of love. Even if love is not a roller coaster ride, it has its ups and downs. God's love may be constant, but our response to it certainly is not. The problem with the speaker's idea of is that it is so idealistic that it is not Christian. Uh, and here I'll prove it. When Christians marry, it is not a marriage of true minds. Uh, it's a marriage of two bodies. And bodies bend and alter. The kind of mental union the speaker asserts is more proper to platonic love. Though I suspect that a thoroughgoing Platonist would what is clear is that the speaker has left the body out of love. 
if the speaker is in error, and he is, does it follow then that he is not in love? In terms both of logic and common sense, the answer is no. Shakespeare understands that to err, especially in love, is human. To say that the speaker of Sonnet 116 is not in love would require the reader to argue, at least implicitly, the very point that he or she is trying to refute, that love is not love unless it is without error. Rather than imitate the speaker and presume to know what true love is, the reader should consider that it is still logically possible and indeed probable that Shakespeare believes that humans can be in love even if they are in error about what love is. Love is not incompatible with error. Indeed, in common human experience, it is pretty much inseparable from error. <laughs> that we are almost always in one state of error or another does not mean that there is no constancy in love. It simply means that genuine, healthy constancy has to be compatible with the vicissitudes of the human condition. Only a love that admits error and imperfection is open to growth. We're getting there. Uh, in accepting error as human and in many other ways, Shakespeare resembles Michel de Montaigne. Shakespeare somehow knew Montaigne's essays in translation before they were published. Although he's not indebted to Montaigne for any of his ideas, he did see in Montaigne, at least the late Montaigne, a kindred spirit. In the first edition of the essays, Montaigne is what might be called a questioning Stoic. By his third and final and greatly expanded edition, he has passed through skepticism to an enlightened Epicureanism. As Montaigne's Stoicism becomes increasingly attenuated over successive editions of his essays, his extended exploration of the variable human condition leads him almost inductively to the discovery of a flexible constancy that could guide human conduct. In the climactic conclusion of his final essay, Of Experience, he, he claims, paraphrasing Plutarch, and here you're gonna get another quotation, that it is an absolute perfection, and as it were divine, for a man to know how to enjoy his being loyally. Uh, and in the French, significant um, that this is a law word. What Montaigne proposes is a kind of natural law theory grounded in common human experience rather than the superhuman logos of the Stoics. For Montaigne, the best and most commendable lives are fitted to the common mold and human model without wonder or extravagancy. This is a natural law that is Life itself provides the law, and the way to obey it is to be in constant, is by constant attention to life. And as Montaigne's final essay makes abundantly clear, life is lived in and the world is experienced through the body. Like Montaigne, 
Shakespeare was allergic to the kind of idealism that leads us away from the body and inevitably sets reason at odds with common human experience. Angelo in Measure for Measure, a play you need to have to your curriculum, uh, is undoubtedly Shakespeare's best example of those who attempt, in Montaigne's term, to escape man, with the unfortunate result that instead of transforming themselves into angels, they transchange themselves into beasts. Angelo, as his name suggests, is disconnected from his body uh, until he meets Isabella, who, as her name suggests, is beautiful uh, and also happens to be disconnected from her body. This is, you know, it's what happens when you get a marriage of true minds. <laughs> Angelo is less than an angel less than a human being when he discovers sexual attraction. Prospero in The Tempest, by contrast, is Shakespeare's best counterexample. And you do read The Tempest. Um, virtually omnipotent on his island, Prospero abjures his magical powers and turns from the world of spirits back to the world of imperfect human beings. Like Montaigne's last essay, Shakespeare's great late plays present superhuman aspirations as inconsistent with human flourishing. The Tempest ends with an epilogue in which Prospero asks the audience's forgiveness for what he had early, earlier called his rough magic. And you have the quotation there, the last one. Now my charms are all overthrown strength I have's mine own, which is most faint. Now tis true I must be here confined by you for ascent to Naples. Let me not, since I have my dukedom got and pardon the deceiver, dwell in this fair island by your spell, but release me from my bands with the help of your great hands. Gentle breath of yours my sails must fill or else my project fails, which was to please. Now I want spirits to enchant art, spirits to enforce art to enchant, and my ending is despair unless I be relieved by prayer, which pierces so that it assaults mercy itself and frees all faults. As you from crimes would pardon be, let your indulgence set me free. Prospero has told us that the magical power is no longer his, but ours. And he calls on us to set him free by renouncing our own power as he has his. He could have used his magic to get revenge on his enemies, but instead he forgave them. The audience now has the power to get revenge on Prospero if we are dissatisfied with the play by hissing it. But he asks us instead to show mercy. The way that we release Prospero from his bands is with our hands, and he wants us to join him in a prayer that reaches up to mercy itself. Of course, audiences more typically put their hands together to clap, and Prosper is making a clever appeal for applause. What you may not know is that clapping is also the way to break a magical spell. You don't study magic in your curriculum. <laughs> when we clap, we break our magical hold over Prosper. 
shown mercy, we'll have reason to hope that we too will receive mercy when we return to our lives in the real world. In Prospero's last couplet, I hope that you heard an echo of the Lord's Prayer. Have you, does that register? Um, as you from crimes would pardon be, let your indulgence set me free. Um, if you didn't, <laughs> Prospero asks us to forgive him for any faults we found in the performance, as we ourselves wish to be forgiven for our trespasses. In this play, Shakespeare shows that the real godlike power is not magic, but mercy. In the Neoplatonism of Shakespeare's time, becoming a magus and wielding magical power was the pinnacle of human accomplishment. Shakespeare rejects that kind of self-perfection that manifests itself in control over others. Instead, Prospero goes from playing God to, in fact, doing something truly divine, forgiving. This is a positive ethic, uh, and it is the example that Shakespeare leaves us with at the end of his career. Almost there. Conclusion. Love, mercy, and forgiveness are not an ethical system, but they are something far greater. For his ethics, Shakespeare looks not to any system, but to the gospel. He hated the early modern-day Pharisees and all forms of hypocrisy. He believed in mercy and forgiveness and deeply distrusted those zealous to set others straight. And he does not hesitate to call out those who judge others, those who forget that with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. I have already referenced Measure for Measure. Its title, Like Shakespeare's Ethics, drawn from the Sermon on the Mount. This is not to say that Shakespeare was some version of what we today would call a Bible Christian. Shakespeare also drank deeply from scholastic philosophy and theology. We know that he read the work of Richard Hooker, a learned and subtle Anglican Thomist. Shakespeare's works indicate to my eyes a deep influence and kinship with the moderate realism of St. Thomas. Like St. Thomas, he was profoundly anti-dualist, and he had no patience for those who denigrate the body and its claims, whether through a false idealism, such as that of the Neoplatonic Gnostics of his time, or through an unhealthy enthusiasm for rules and restraints as advocated by contemporary Puritans. Shakespeare has the good sense of a Thomist, and he applied it to an amazing range of situations extending well beyond anything St. Thomas ever imagined. And in doing so, he offers new and profound insights into human ethics, psychology, and anthropology, and everything else. He, he diagnoses rationalism and dualism before Descartes even arrives on the scene. He anticipates Freud's psychology of repression and denial centuries before that terminology was available. He offered devastating critiques of Victorian middle-class morality long before Bernard Shaw coined that derogatory name. 
Please take these as examples and not as an exhaustive list of the substantial insights Shakespeare has into ethics broadly conceived. These insights are, I believe, fundamentally consistent with St. Thomas. His method of conveying them, of course, is not. When it comes to his dramatic method, Shakespeare is less scholastic than biblical. Shakespeare time and again creates experiences for audiences that are akin to the experience of reading the Bible. They feel convicted. As I said before, Shakespeare saw this kind of entrapment in the medieval drama. Well, the medieval dramatist saw it in the Bible, whether in the parables of Jesus, I am the prodigal son's older brother, um, or in, say, you know, other passages such as that. You remember when the prophet Nathan tells King David the story of the man who stole the other man's lamb? That man is you. If one believes that the Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture, it would seem that the true originator of the dramatic method Shakespeare employs is God himself. been a pleasure for me to speak of Shakespeare's Christian ethics to you, an audience that has, uh, as they say, some skin in the game. I apologize for taking up so much time, uh, more than I thought I would take when I wrote this, um, and for talking about so many works. It's a lot to digest, especially after dinner. Um, <laughs> I saw some of you napping. <laughs> Shakespeare is more than entertainment for an evening. Uh, I've spent a good deal of my life chewing on his works, and I hope that you will devote some time to doing the same. Uh, thank you for listening, and please accept my best wishes 